and welcome to the Seahawks 360 podcast, a sports ethos production. I'm your host, Candace Hagens, and as always, it's a pleasure and a privilege to talk Hawks with you. I hope you guys have checked out our series that we did recently, a sports ethos crossover production. And essentially, we broke down the entire NFC West landscape, not just from a competitive perspective, but where the Seahawks fit into that landscape and a lot of fantasy fantasy football implications for, the, for those of you guys who are into fantasy football. We get a ton of tips and JP Sticko was a great uh, he's a great resource for uh, talking about a lot of those types of things. We'll have him and Ren back on our show here soon. But in the meantime, I hope you will check out those episodes. It was a two-parter. Why? Because it was just that much information that we went over, guys. So make sure to go check that out on our page at Ethos Seahawks. You can find the links retweeted there for parts one and two. But It's been a while since we've been able to talk one-on-one, so I'm happy to be back with you guys. A few things have happened since we talked last, so while we will pick back up with our Redemption Row series, I just want to go over over a few of the updates and some little tidbits of news here and there, give my opinions on them before we get into Redemption Row. So, got a lot to get into again. Let's get started. So first, let's get into the statement that Jody Allen put out not that long ago, pretty much addressing the rumors that the Paul Allen estate required for the Seattle Seahawks and the Portland Trailblazers to be sold at a certain amount of time. She essentially sent out a statement saying that there was no predetermined time by the estate that the teams had to be sold, that they do not have the intentions on selling the team at that time, despite offers that have been put in for the Portland Trailblazers. And... That that's was that was a bit of interesting news. So the Seahawks do not seem to be up for sale anytime soon. If we are to take that statement at face value, and I think I do, I can see how there would be no predetermined timelines. But there was another report that came out around the same time that was pretty much talking about Jody Allen's uninvolvement in her franchises, at least in the past. There was a report that Damian Lillard had of the Portland Trailblazers had reached out to her wanting to sit down on a couple of occasions and was pretty much redirected and had never had a face to face conversation with the face of that franchise for so many years. And while it had not affected at all his decision to stay in Portland, he did decide to stay and sign a huge two million dollar. I think it was two years, $122 million uh, extension that he decided to, to stay. But, you know, it's really interesting to me that the franchise player who was loyal for all those years and really has chosen to stay, despite me thinking that he should go, would reach out to the owner of that franchise and sort of be redirected on multiple occasions. To me, that confirms my initial thought about Jody Allen as an owner in that she's not a bad owner, but that she was, in my opinion, a little too hands off, hands off to the point of detriment to the to the ceiling of her teams, I think. And let me talk about that a little bit more. What I mean is just like the report. She typically has people in place who she trusts to make the decisions, the majority of those decisions. And leaves it to up to them. I think she gets updates. I think she's included on important news and information, but for the most part, she seems pretty hands-off. And because she's so hands-off, 
I think her general mode of opera of operation is to keep things as is if it's not broken don't fix it keep it running and i think that's a theme that you can see in both how the portland trailblazers have been run and how the seattle seahawks have been run in this sort of high contention point of mediocrity so for both the Seattle Seahawks and the Portland Trailblazers for years. They've been regular playoff contenders, regular, um, you know, good teams, right? They're not, they haven't been bad until recently. They haven't been bad teams. They've been good teams with franchise, with franchise players like Damian Lillard for the Portland Trailblazers and like Russell Wilson for the Seattle Seahawks. And there's just sort of been this issue for both players with their franchises, with respective franchises about, the frustration of getting only to a certain point, only to the first or second round at best, and then exiting out, never having enough, the team never really doing enough to put themselves in position to get over that hump. And so just kind of staying in that cycle, that's that's the case with both franchises. And I just don't see that as by coincidence. I think that's a result as the two hands-off approach of Jody Allen. Now, I don't know what's worse. Actually, I do know what's worse. I guess what's worse is a two-hands-on owner like Jerry Jones that can mess things up. But that that's how things have stood for, for at least, I'd say, recent years. Now, I do think that might seem to be changing. I get that sense. And I don't really have any sources or indicators. I'm just kind of paying attention to the tea leaves. Joni Allen has been, to this point, pretty much a source of legacy i mean <laughs> whispers like, there's really nothing been there's been no no appearances no statements really nothing from her but just her ad- addressing this statement and these rumors directly to me seems like she's at least a little bit more in tune with things happening uh she's had to do a lot of the hiring for a lot of the changes made in the front office of the portland trailblazers maybe that's prompted her to kick in a little bit more on the seahawks franchise as she was in appearance on draft day and she was a part of that decision to let russell wilson go so maybe just with all the changes happening in both of these franchises maybe she's realizing now that she needs to be a little bit more hands-on than she was before i do think that there's been some shifting of the powers personally with the seattle seahawks i just think that Pete Carroll seems to have a little bit less power than he's had in the past. And I could be wrong about that, but I just look at the draft. I look at the type of players that were drafted. And I look at one of the big key indicators for me that something might have changed structure-wise after that meeting that Pete and John had allegedly with with Jody Allen. And then everybody thought that it was possible that Pete or John could go and then nothing happened and it just went silent. One of the things that happened after that meeting was you know, the releasing of Bobby Wagner and something that a lot of people overlooked, but I did not overlook in relation to his power structure was how John and Pete both took responsibility for the Bobby Wagner thing being their fault. But when Pete was explaining how it was his fault, he was saying they thought that they weren't going to end up doing it. He thought that they, if they were, they had more time. And ultimately he looked up and Bobby was cut. Boom. And so there was an opportunity to have that conversation. To me, that just seems like Pete was told now, hope that they were going to find a way to keep Bobby. And John pretty much made a decision and went ahead and did it and cut him. Whereas before, I think he would have been a part of that conversation and it would have been Pete being caught off guard by a decision made from a separate entity. It seems like he found out 
it's kind of he found out before all of us, obviously. But it seems like he found out after the fact, which to me says he wasn't needed to make the decision. That was something small. And I could be reading too much into that. I'd understand that if somebody thought that. But just from me and just a few of the things and how the draft has gone on, I just get the sense that Pete has a little bit less power and Jody's kind of stepped in, giving a little bit more power to John. And we'll see ultimately how the year goes and things like that. Pete's still very much so the head coach of this team, and he still has a lot of say and influence on the organization. But I think it's less than before. So with those changes being made, I think that's a result of Jody Allen's involvement, of her stepping in and saying she's not liking the results that she's seeing for either of the franchises and starting to be involved and make some decisions. It's my hope that we can get this sort of pressure from her to hold Pete and John accountable for their actions because that's been a question for years. Who's holding them accountable? If Jody Allen didn't, doesn't, didn't really seem to be involved, and I think this report by Damian Lillard sort of proved that, that she wasn't really involved in, and that she might be now. So my thinking is that if she's going to be a little bit more hands-on, if she's going to be to this level of degree involved consistently, I don't mind her being the owner. I don't think she's a bad owner. She seems to be analytics-driven. I like that in a front office like John and Pete who – don't seem to be influenced by those things as much. I, I like that balance. And I think she doesn't try to take over in areas that she's not an expert, which is always a potential problem when you're talking about new owners coming in, wanting to run the show, you know, especially if they don't have any real experience in that area. So uh, that that's just my thoughts. A lot, lot of thinking to that. We'll see how it plays out. Because of the report, I no longer think that the Seahawks are going to be sold anytime soon. But, you know, you never know. So we'll continue to monitor that story as more information comes out. But speaking of monitoring, there is no updated news at all on the DK Metcalf front. It is July, and I think it's about the time for them to start doing some contract negotiations with him. I hope that those things are ongoing. DK, in my opinion, with his showing up to voluntary camps but not showing up to the mandatory camp. He's done his uh, media day uh, wardrobe things for the Seahawks. He's even filmed recently a video working out with Geno Smith. To me, it seems like he's taking a stand where he needs to just because he wants to make sure that he takes a stand in these in these contract negotiations. I think that he still has every intention on playing for the Seahawks. Even if you see a hold-in from DK Metcalf, I think it'll be similar to that of the mandatory minicamp sit-out or hold-out. I think that it's just him making a statement and saying, hey, I'm valuable. Pay me like I'm valuable until you do so. I'm not going to be willing to take these measures that you want me to. But he's done too many things outside of the mandatory, I feel like to indicate that he actually does want to be a part of this team for me to really be concerned about him going into the season. So it is my hope that they can work this out because I think it's valuable that DK gets some quality time with both Drew Drew, Drew Locke and Geno Smith. So I know he's worked out some with Geno Smith, but you also want him to get some reps and some chemistry with Drew Locke because you don't know what decision they're going to go with at the end. And you want to make sure that he gets that practice time in after last year, not really having the opportunity to practice much. He did not practice a lot during the week. Um, 
because of his injury. So he was kind of, they were kind of managing that for him. So he spent a lot of time off. So you want him to run those routes and to get those offensive concepts. And for him, I think it's important that he sort of, I've talked about this before, steps up his game with his catch percentage. I think he needs to be a more reliable pass catcher this year. So with that, it's going to be very important for him and whatever the quarterback is to have chemistry. You want him in training camp. And so in my opinion, it's really time to get a deal done. Really hope we can hear some news within the next week or so. Training camp is only a couple weeks away. And so you that now is the time to get things moving. And now is around the time that the Seahawks historically get deals done anyway. You just hope it doesn't have to boil over to training camp to get things done. But uh, no update on that front. But some of the big news that has been talked about since we last talked was the Baker Mayfield trade. Baker Mayfield was traded to the Carolina Panthers for a conditional fifth round pick, assuming that I think he plays 70% of the games or snaps, something like that. I think it will upgrade then to a fourth round pick. And there's a lot of a lot of different reactions from the Seahawks fan base about this. Some Seahawks fans are relieved. Other Seahawks fans are disappointed. Others perhaps are neutral. Um, but for me, I'm mostly just not surprised. I, I was not under the impression at any point that the Seahawks were really interested in Baker for a lot of reasons. One, I think he kind of made it clear early on that he wasn't particularly interested in Seattle. And so you won't really want to go hard after a quarterback who who has not really shown interest or buy-in to want to be a part of your program, especially if they're known for being a little bit difficult when they're in tough situations, personality-wise. I never knew if they saw Baker as a culture fit, even though I feel like he was the better offensive scheme fit between him and Jimmy Garoppolo. I do feel like Baker was a better fit on the field because Pete Carroll wants an offense that can run the ball well and he wants explosive plays. And I feel like Baker Mayfield can do explosive plays. And he's much better when he's got a good running game behind him. Jimmy G's weakness, I feel, is explosive plays. I feel like that's his one weakness is being accurate on explosive plays and really being able to get the ball downfield when it's needed. Otherwise, I think he's a good game manager. And while Pete may love that part, Pete absolutely is big on having those big plays to help open up his run game, essentially, is a thought process. So while Baker's a better fit on the field, I just don't think they saw a win situation. In my mind, if they picked up Baker Mayfield – it was a lose-lose. And I feel the same way about if they pick up Jimmy Garoppolo or, or any other quarterback for that matter at this point. One, they're going to be behind the eight ball because they will not know the offense as well. And he seems to be big on that. He talked about nothing else but Drew Locke catching up on the offense way early in the season and how Geno was at an advantage just because of that. So I'm not even sure if any quarterback they brought in would be at an advantage from that standpoint. They, they'd probably come in behind the eight ball just because Pete really wants that playbook knowledge to be top-notch. Two, even if they, in the best-case scenario, where Baker Mayfield helps you win maybe 10 games, because I, I think he could do that. I think he could get this team at least 10 wins. I think he's the difference between maybe a seven-win team and a 10-win win team. But I'm not sure that he's really going to win any playoff games. 
and I'm not sure that the Seahawks will be willing to pay him after that. I mean, if they decide to if they decide to pay him, then it's it's not quite the Russell Wilson situation. He's not going to command anywhere close to the same amount of money that that Russell Wilson did, but I think a big part of them wanting to rebuild was to take back some of that cap space from paying the quarterback so much and to invest it in other areas of the roster in a ways that they've wanted to do for so long. And another thing is, I feel like if you were going to start Baker, then what was the point of getting Drew Locke? You could have got another player instead of Drew Locke. I mean, honestly, if you were going to just trade for another quarterback anyway, you could have got a Bradley Chubb from the Broncos. Like you could have you could have negotiated pay a Jerry Judy. You could have negotiated pay for another piece that would have been helpful for your roster over Drew Locke. And so then you wasted a part of the Russell Wilson trade by then trading to get Baker. And if and if Baker doesn't do well, I feel like he'll still get you. Even if he doesn't get to 10 games, I feel like he's still, he'll still get you eight, nine, right? That still makes a difference in the drafting position because that's important. I know I'm not I'm not team tank. I'll never be team tank per se, but I do believe in the value of making sure that you do a rebuild correctly. And while I think this team can get the seven wins, I, my preference would be for them to have seven wins put themselves in reasonable position for a top 10 draft pick, right? Because I think that's all they need. They don't have to be the number one pick. I don't think they need to be the number one pick. I don't even think they need to be top five in a quarterback class that's this deep. And in a landscape NFL-wise that a lot of these quarterback slots seem to have been, they've been filled already. I think it'll being top 10 will still give the Seahawks plenty of flexibility because they'll also have another first round pick from the Broncos to pair with that if they wanted to trade up or they felt like they needed to trade up to get their guy. I think they would have the negotiation room to do that. I still want them to be top 10. I don't think it's good for them to jeopardize a top 10 slot for a few extra wins because the narrative from the fan base has been being tired of getting to the playoffs but not getting past the first or second round, never having a deep run. Baker's not going to help with that. And so I don't know why the goal is now just to get to the playoffs and not necessarily win a game. Why was it a problem last year and this year? It seems like for the fan base, it's a goal. It's a little bit confusing for me. I understand that it's that, Ultimately, you want to get to the playoffs to give yourself a chance at the Super Bowl. But I just think that the Seahawks have spent so much time in mediocrity. I would like for them to take a season, get yourself, be competitive throughout the season, prove prove others wrong because a lot of people don't think that the Seahawks can even win five games. And I think they're wrong. Prove, Prove those others wrong. Prove that you've got some young, good pieces to build around. And once you get a quarterback, you'll be in pretty good position to then compete and be more, even more competitive moving forward and hopefully build a Super Bowl type of roster around that quarterback. But so that's goal number one. They want to do that. And then 
they want to give themselves top 10 draft. They want to do both. Be competitive and get yourself a top 10 pick. It's possible to do both. Seven wins does exactly that. It's more competitive than many had the Seahawks pegged for and still should get them in top 10 draft position, which allows for them to get their quarterback, whether it be trading up or staying pat for the many, many quarterbacks available in this draft class. So I know many are disappointed, but I want you to look on the bright side that this team, I believe, will still be competitive no matter who the quarterback is. Remember that Pete Carroll teams, even before Russell Wilson, always won seven games. I just think he's that kind of coach. I think we got good enough players on our roster. This this roster is not destitute. In fact, in a lot of ways, I see upgrades. And I know a lot of you guys see upgrades, too, from our O-line perspective, from our tight end perspective, even from our receiver. I mean, it's good to have Marquise Goodwin on the roster instead of having to depend on D. Eskridge, per se. If, he, if he's great, great. And if he doesn't do much, then you still got another veteran type of guy on your team. I think this offense is significantly better, and the defense has a much higher ceiling given the versatility uh, the versatility that the 3-4 defense allows with these weapons. I think this roster is underrated in a lot of ways, and it can still be competitive with or without Baker Mayfield. I hope that can be some solace to you. And that and, you know, of course, looking at the upcoming QP draft prospects in college could be some, some uh, consolation for you. All right, so that's all I got for news updates. I know that was quite a bit, but it has been a while since we've talked one-on-one, so it was quite a bit to get into. Now, let's kick back off with our Redemption Row series, part two, featuring the defense. So just as a reminder to you guys, Redemption Row is a series I'm doing for both offense and defense to identify the players that most need a bounce back season for the Seahawks to have a successful season and or for them to continue in their careers for various reasons. So on defense, we have four players and we're going to start off with Alton Robinson, the second year player out of Syracuse. And I know that it's a little strange to have a second-year player here on Redemption Row, but I think this is a very critical year for Alton. Alton had sort of a pretty good, solid outing for his rookie year, and he really dropped off after that. He went from four sacks in his rookie year to one sacks and playing in more games. He had the same amount of tackles, and he had one less QB hit, but his PFF rating dropped from 66.6, for 66.7 to 51.8. And a big re- reason why was just because he didn't seem to be efficient with his pressures. He just didn't really seem to have an impact on the passing, on the pass rush game at all on the field. Um, it was minimal best. That that sack that he got was in week two. And he didn't really, he didn't have a single sack after week two. To make matters worse or even more concerning for him when I talk about his career is he seemed to struggle when when the team started making adjustments, going more 3-4 concepts. He did not really look comfortable when he was in drop coverage. He's a guy that's 270 pounds, and so that's not necessarily his skill set. And there's a lot of question about if he can play well in the 3-4 system. I personally have questions about him. I'm high on him as a player, but he's really got a lot to prove if he wants to stick around on this roster because – 
he's got to prove he can fit. He's got to prove he can still be effective in some aspects. Even if pass coverage isn't a point of a strength, he's got to be able to show, show himself strong when it comes to the edge rush. And that's just the opposite of what he did. He saw himself not playing games because of it, just because he was ineffective out there on the field. And I think he can be a lot better of a player than that. There may be maybe with the summer of him adjusting to these new concepts, with him practicing these new concepts, he'll find some comfortability level and at least be able to thrive in the edge rush game, pass rush, because this team needs it. This team really needs for Alton Robinson to at least get to his rookie level production. The four sacks, you'd love for him to have more than that, sure. You'd love for him to have six, but I think at this point, you just got to hope he can be a contributor, a source of pressure. If he can't get the sacks, can he be the guy to get pressure on the quarterback? That'll still make a big difference in value for this team. But he's got to prove it. He really does. He's got Boye Mafe, who's just been drafted, and he's got Tariq Smith. And while both of those guys are projects, if they prove that they can be more effective, at least in providing pressure for the quarterback, Alton Robinson can quickly find himself out of a job. He can quickly find himself the LJ Collier of last year, where he's on the roster and he's healthy, but he's just inactive. He's just a healthy scratch for weeks and weeks and weeks on end because the team just can't find ways to use him because he can't be effective at all or he can't prove any value when he's out on the field. I don't really want that for Alton Robinson. I really want for him to show value to this organization because I think he's got a pretty good, I think he can be a six, seven sack guy for you, but it's possible that this just isn't the system for him. I think in order for him to have sort of redemption kind of year for him to pretty much maintain a role in a niche, on this roster, I think his stat line would have to look something like this. He had to have a couple of forced fumbles because he's got to be able to impact the game in terms of getting momentum, game-changing plays. He had one forced fumble in each of his first two seasons. I think upping that to two in a season is of extreme value. I also think that he needs to get back up to four sacks. Now, again, I would love to say six, but I want to be realistic if he could just get back up to at least four sacks to show that he can bring value because the reality is he's going to be a rotation player. I'm not sure that he's going to get the same amount of opportunities that he had his rookie year or the year before that because you do have two other – you got um, Daryl Taylor now who's going to be your starter. You got Uchenna Nuosu who's also going to be a starter. So he's going to be coming in off the bench – and he's going to be competing with Mafe for minutes, is my guess. So I, I think that he'll have some competition in that role. And with that said, I, I just want to be realistic about my expectations. I think if he could get back up to four, it would be it would be promising. And it would show that he can still be a member of this team, that he can still be worth a draft. He was a late draft pick. So you don't, you're not, you're not going to have super high expectations from him regardless. I believe he went in the fifth round. And so if he could just get you that it'd be a start and then you'd hope that he can build on that in year four and what would be a good contract prove it type of year for him. And I think he should up his tackles. That's another thing. He had 22 tackles in both of his first two seasons and you really want for him to, to show more impact that way. If he can't get the sacks, then he's got to be able to provide value, getting stops, 
stopping third downs. Now, the defense, I think, will be better set to help all of their personnel do this. And so hopefully this is something he can take advantage of and, and you know, have some key, you know, prevent some fourth downs. If he can, you know, just make plays, make timely, important tackles, he can find himself some value to get on the field that way. And then I think he needs at least six quarterback hits. Just goes back to he's got to be able to show he can add pressure. He's got to be able to apply a pressure. He went from four QB hits the first year to three the next year. He's got to bounce that back up. He just has to surpass what his rookie year is. If he's not going to have more sacks than he had his rookie year, then he needs to show he can at least apply more pressure. And again, that'll be another thing that will go very far for him showing that he should be a valuable part of this rotation. The second player that I have on Redemption Row is none other than, you guessed it, Jamal Adams. Jamal Adams, as we know, had a bit of a down year. And as a result, a lot of people do not feel like the trade that Seattle Seahawks made for him was at all worth it. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, because that that pick that they gave up to the Jets ended up being a top 10 pick. It really hard to see that go. But also just because Jamal Adams has struggled with health. He struggled with being healthy. He's played through some injuries, and so he's a warrior in the toughest sense. He's been as available as he can. He's played 12 games in his first uh, two seasons with the Seahawks, but you want more from Jamal Adams, especially given that contract. He, I believe now, at least until DK gets paid, is the highest paid player on the team. Kondrak may have beat him out just a little bit, but I actually don't think so. I think he's still the highest paid player on the team. And so you want him to play like he's worth that money. So I think big part of that is health. I think Jamal Adams needs to play 17 games. And I think he needs to play 17 games relatively healthy, which means that his performance isn't hindered by him being on the field. I mean, we know that the football is a long season and that you're going to get battered and bruised up and then you have to play through it. That's to be expected. I think for him, you just need for him to, like, not be playing with one arm like he was in the 2020 playoffs and that type of thing. You really want him to finish out the year without having to get surgery on something important, right? You want him to have a season to be able to focus on just his game, just being better. And I think that Jamal Adams has shown his worth. His first year with the Seahawks, he was second He was second team All-Pro, pro ball player. And he broke the record for defensive, for sacks by a defensive back in NFL history, which is all critical things. And I think he just he showed flashes of what he could be. The first year, I think they overplayed his strengths too much. And he, named, he earned the name Blitz Boy. It is because they blitzed him almost nonstop. And he ended up getting 9.5 sacks and breaking that record, yes, but you just didn't get enough of other things from him. I think Jamal Adams did improve in coverage last year. I think he showed some progress in that area, but he was not playing to his comfort, and so he just wasn't the impact player that Seattle needed him to be because they had him sort of, in my opinion, they had him covering up a lot for the mistakes of the cornerback. Their cornerback team, their cornerback Death was really weak, and I think they had their safeties doing a lot of work to sort of overcompensate for the weaknesses from the cornerback room, at least for the first half of the season, I know for sure. That's just my thought. They did a lot of shading, a lot of just trying to be there and be in position to make up in case the cornerback has a, you know, busted coverage. 
And so he was just out of position, I feel. He had zero sacks last year. I mean, the guy went from 9.5 to zero sacks, and he played the same amount of games. So to me, that says that's much more of a coaching decision than a lack of talent on Jamal Adams' behalf. I have no question, no questions at all about his talent, but I hope with these new changes that Jamal will be better put in a position for success, that his responsibilities will be a little bit more balanced. You do want to see him be able to drop back in coverage, I feel. But you also, you know, you want to see him impact the game in the way that he does best, and that's getting sacks. That's tackles for loss. That's what he does. Because last year, he had five pass five pass breakups, which was more than his three that he had the year before that. He didn't have any forced fumbles. He had a few more tackles, 87 tackles, four, four more tackles. And he had only four tackles for loss when he had 11 the year before. So that was just a big difference. He was able to have two interceptions in one season. That was his career high for the most interceptions in a season for him. Sadly, but it was. So what I would like to see a stat line that I think would redeem, would show redemption for Jamal Adams that would put him in the best position where I think the Seahawks fan base, even if they don't feel like the deal or the trade was worth it, that he's earning his check, essentially. Again, playing 17 games, 16 at the minimum. I mean, he just needs to play most of those games and finish out the year healthy. He needs to get two interceptions again. I think he needs to be more intentional about about getting interceptions. I do personally have concerns about his ability to do this. He recently got surgery in the offseason to fuse his hands in place because he had so many displaced fingers over the years. And I'm a little worried about his ability to then catch a football. He never had good hands to begin with. And so now, (laughs) I mean, he's had opportunities where the ball hit him point blank in the hands and he just couldn't catch it. I worry about this a little bit more even now, but I think in order for him to show real value, I don't think sacks will be enough. I think he'll need to have just a little bit of balance with some interceptions in order to really fully earn the money that he's going to be making. So two sacks, I'm sorry, two interceptions, Seven sacks, I think, is what he needs. It's still an extremely high number for a defensive back. Yeah, 6.5 uh, in his first year with us. Six, No, he had 6.5 with his last year as, as the Jets. 6.5, and that was when he was all-pro first team. So you'd like to see him get seven sacks, something like that, uh, because he's getting paid like a baller, right? Uh, he should play like one. And he can do seven sacks, especially if he's playing all the 17 games, right? It's enough for him to be balanced, not 9.5, where he's basically essentially a defensive end. But, you know, spread out over 17 games, that's a reasonable ratio, I feel like, between coverage and pass rush, which is where he shines. I think he needs four passes defensed. He had three in his first year with us. He had five last year. I think having him still hone those coverage skills is important in spurts. And I think for him to have four passes defense would still be a really big deal. And once again, showing his versatility, because that's what Jamal Adams is supposed to be, a versatile defensive weapon. He needs to show up on the stat sheet in all areas, including passes defense. I think one force fumble is fine. Two would be great, but we'll take one. 
And I think he needs to get at least eight tackles for loss. He said he had 11 in his first year with us. He had four tackles for loss before. Now, that has a lot to do with his positioning. I think if he's more balanced and they're, and they're more um, calculated in how they use him and when they use him at certain times, I think he should be able to do this easily. I'm not really concerned about Jamal Adams. I'll say this again, but I do think it's important for him to redeem himself because he's already in a position for a lot of criticism because of a lot of the things that have happened, some within his control and some out of his control um, to this point. But I like the guy. I think he's an important piece for this team to build around. I think he can be a centerpiece for a Super Bowl team, to be honest. If, if he's put in the right position, I think he can absolutely dominate games. And it's my hope that we can see Jamal Adams have one or two games where he just dominates, where he stuffs the stat sheet and he really just proves the valuable player that I believe that he is. Third on the list, we have the curious case of Marquise Blair. I know I've talked about him a little bit before, but it is a curious case indeed, and he has absolutely got to have redemption. This is his fourth year. He's got a lot to prove. It's a contract year for him. And the most important thing that I think he's got to prove, first of all, is that he can stay healthy. Because at this point, it is my opinion that Marquise Blair is the defensive equivalent of Rashad Penny in that he's shown some great flashes You've seen some things that show his potential, but he's never been able to stay healthy long enough for you you really make a decision about him one way or the other. I mean, he only played in six games last year. He played in two games a year before that. And while he did play in 14 games a year before, he didn't start in a lot of games. He only started in three. And honestly, the, the coaching, they didn't really give him an opportunity to, to get on the field that much. Snap count wise, they didn't really trust him to understand the defensive scheme, concepts being in the right place, et cetera. So as a result, there's still a lot of questions about Marquise Blair and who he is. So I think he's got to play at least 12 games. That's redemption for Marquise Blair, for him to be able to play 12 games. And I think Marquise Blair has an interesting niche that he could feel for this team or any other team. I think he can show himself. He doesn't, he's not a ball hawk, whether you're playing him at safety or whether you're playing him at nickel cornerback. He's not a ball hawk type of guy. I think he's a guy who can make game changing momentum plays and otherwise be solid in everything else that you're asking him to do. I think he he's above average in play, but I think what may make him special is for lack of a better term, his ability to potentially create some chaos for the opposing teams. What we've seen and the flashes that we've seen from Marquise Blair have come in in timely passes deflect in, or passes deflected in timely forced fumbles. He's really great for that. He's got some, but his ability to force some fumbles is pretty canny and, and he's been able to do so in an efficient manner in the short spurts that we've seen him with the exception of this past year. His ability to get some timely tackles. I think sometimes, even if it's just been a regular tackle, he just seems to be in when you need him. When you got to stop a third down conversion, he seems to be the guy who can be in position to stop that. And that's the role that you really can see for him. But there's a question about if he's going to be able to do that on this team. There's a huge question about if he's going to be able to do that with this team. Because at the safety position, the Seahawks are pretty much on lock. They've already got Jamal Adams, Quandre Diggs. They're playing the safeties a lot of money already. Are they really going to be willing to pay him? 
Probably not. But even when you're talking about the backups, Ryan Neal has proven for himself to be a reliable backup safety that this team can regularly include in the rotation. Whether he's starting or not, they've made plays for him. He's been able to show the ability to blitz, to cover, to do pretty much everything that you need for him to do at a reliable rate. While sort of taking that niche that I think that Marquise Blair can have in timely plays, right? Just when the time is right, being able to make an impact play to change the game, momentum-wise. I feel like he's sort of taken on some of that role. It doesn't quite look as flashy and athletic as when Marquise Blair does it, but if he can be that guy, it really is a lot of question for him. And I'll talk about this a little bit more but if you're talking about putting him in the nickel cornerback position, there's questions about that. That is a stacked position, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit here, but it's a stacked position, and so my question is, really, where is his place to shine? I don't really see it too much, at least for the Seahawks. I think he can be a very valuable piece. I just don't know if the Seahawks is going to be the team that he's ever really going to be able to reach his ceiling. He's still young, and he's still got a lot of football that he can play if he can just stay healthy. But I'll talk about what I think a strong year would, for him would be. What I think if he, if he got this stat line, I think the Seahawks could sign him on a one- or two-year prove-it deal. You know, prove he can stay healthy, kind of something similar like they did with Shad Penny. If he can do something like that, something like this, I think he'll be able to – the team will find ways to put him in the game. All right, if he can have – like I said, 12 games at least finished out, one interception at least. He hasn't really had any interceptions to this point. I think that's that'll be important, whether he's safety or cornerback. You want him to show that he has the ability to, to get interceptions at some point. Doesn't have to be a ball hawk, but he, you just want him at this point, four years in, to show that skill. At least seven passes defensed, which will be significantly more than what he's had before. He only had two passes defensed, but that was in six games. Right, So I think if he was able to play 12 games, he needs to be able to step up, be, like I said, defensive impactor, impact momentum games. You do that by passive defense, especially in timely situations. Four forced fumbles. He can do that. I've seen him. We've seen, I've seen preseason games where he is just absolutely dominated. I've seen him be very impactful in games. Just during the regular NFL season, he can do four forced fumbles if he can stay healthy because that's what I feel like he's best at, to be honest, skill-wise. I think he need about 38 tackles and three tackles for loss. That would be a well-rounded enough stat sheet for, I, for, for me to really feel like the team believes in him because, like I said, he's right now he's looking like a bust. It, it's... He just is, just because he can't stay healthy. It's the Rashad Penny effect, where this is the point where he's got to be able to prove he can stay healthy enough to really impact the game. This is a guy that was taken before DK Metcalf. He wasn't the first pick, but he was the second pick that they that they got. They got him before DK, like I said. So this is a guy that they believed in, were really high on at the time. And to be honest, I'm still high on the kid. I think his upside is there. I think his value in this league is there. But he's really got to find his niche, which means he's got to stay healthy enough. Really the only reason why he's in this position and being so far on the depth chart and being in the position to have to fight so, against such hard competition just because the team can't trust him to stay healthy. So they've had to put bodies in place to protect themselves against his injury proneness. And as a result, he's got to fight for it if he wants to stay. I think he can do it. I think he can. If he can force fumbles, if he can make plays, 
Pete Carroll will find spaces for him on this field. That's just the way it's going to work. He's just got out. He's going to have to earn it, and it'll be interesting to see if he does. And finally, let's talk Ugo Imadi, who is interesting. They go hand in hand. Ugo Imadi was pretty much Marquise's Blair, Marquise Blair's original competition for the nickel cornerback spot, and Imadi pretty much not just because of health, but pretty much came in and he ran with it. He his ability to disguise his coverages. His ability to make some plays, uh, pass breakups, his ability to uh, just be at the right spot where he needed to be in 2020 completely went away in 2021. And he had quite the downfall. If you just looked at the box score, statistically, there's not that much of a difference. He had one more interception. He had his first career interception. And he had two less tackles for loss. But otherwise, if you just looked at him, box score to box score, you really won't see too many differences at all. In fact, it's actually creepy, it's creepily eerily similar just from a you know, assisted tackles and solo tackles. It's, it's really it's really weird how duplicated those statistics are. But if you look just a little bit beyond the statistics, you'll see why I'm saying Ugo might have had such a down year. It was his pass coverage. That significantly dropped off. He was a part of a lot of busted coverages uh, with the with the Seahawks bad season, he was a big part of that. Unfortunately, when it came to letting so many pass yards um, go through, he doubled his rate of missed tackles. He went from only missing six point nine percent of his tackles in twenty twenty to missing twelve point nine percent of his tackles the next year. He allowed three hundred and twenty one yards after catch. That's one hundred and three yards more than he did the year before. His completion percentage went from 73% to 78.7%. That's pretty rough. Even the yards per completion went from 7.8 yards per completion to 9.2 yards per completion. So really every statistical measure when you would, when you want to look at pass coverage was a significant drop off. And because his performance was so much of a drop-off, I think it's why the competition at nickel cornerback is so heavy to begin with. They in- essentially didn't feel like they could trust either Marquise Blair to stay healthy or Ugo Amadi's pass coverage, not really knowing which one you'd get. His floor seems to be lower than they thought, and they just didn't want to put themselves in a position to be um, continually take you know a weakness. That was a weak position last year and so they brought in Justin Coleman they brought in Artie Barnes and then you still got um, Ugo Amadi and Marquise Blair because of the competition I don't really know if Amadi gets an opportunity to redeem himself to be honest I think it's going to be tough for him to find his way on this roster I'm hearing great things about Artie Barnes and his comfortability in this defensive system and his ability to make plays and I've actually, I'm pretty got some, I'm pretty optimistic about his ability to contribute to the team. Most people assume that Justin Coleman's going to be the starter, but I'm actually not so sure that it's not Artie Barnes when it comes to starting in nickel cornerback. I think Justin Coleman could be the secondary guy, and I think they'll try to give Marquise Blair some snaps because of his health and because they, there's still a real question mark about who he is and what he can be. And they've seen Amadi and who he is and what he can be. 
it would not be hard for me to imagine at all if Ugo Amadi did not really get any snaps at all outside of maybe special teams or a rep or two here or there early on or maybe late on if Marquise Blair can't stay healthy. But the only reason, the only way I see Amadi really getting reps here is if, you know, he, he hits a ceiling that we haven't seen. A ceiling to beat out Justin Coleman. A ceiling that will beat out Artie Barnes. But for me, even in his best year, his ceiling to me was sort of just serviceable. I think that's the best he can be. And I think they want to see if they can upgrade that in any position. And so unless Marquise Blur gets hurt, which might happen, unless Marquise Blur gets hurt, I just don't know if he really sees the field. So I don't have a statistical stat line for him is too hard to predict. It was hard to predict with Marquise Blair, but I think that they'll be more likely between the two just to give Blair those snaps, like I said, because it's his fourth year and they really want to see what he can be. They haven't seen a lot of him. They've seen plenty of Ugo, and if it came down to it, I think they just want to tap into some of the upside of what Marquise Blair could be, especially in a year that, you know, there's no real expectations anyway. And while Pete Carroll's not big on upside, I I think – He's had enough heart for Marquise Blair and everything he's gone through to get to this point that he probably want to give the guy a few opportunities because Pete is a guy of second chances. So that's my take on Redemption Row uh, from the defensive perspective. It'll be really interesting to see who steps up and who does not this year. Obviously, I think the impact of these guys uh, living up to their potential could go a long way to making this potentially a top 10, 10 defense because I think that this roster has it in it. it. The talent is there if it could just be put together and utilized properly by the coaching staff. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for tuning in. As always, you can find me on Twitter at CandiceH901. That's CandiceH901. Be sure to show some love to the Sports Ethos, to the Seahawks Ethos page at Ethos Seahawks. Make sure to give us a like, a follow, share the podcast with your family, your friends, any Seahawks and 12s united around. I look forward to talking to you guys on the next podcast. That's all I got for today. I'm out. And as always, go Hawks.